It's not every day that I have one of, is it one of a hundred coolest people in tech um, in the same room as me? So I'd like to introduce Ismail Jalani. Hey, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you too. So, uh, you know, I know what you do. I understand your history to an extent, but for the people listening, could you maybe tell us briefly sort of what you've done going from Google to your first startup to your second and to, to what you're doing now? Sure. I think the story probably starts a few years before Google, actually, because uh, the the single most defining moment in my life was one that I didn't choose. Uh, And that's when tuition fees in the UK tripled. Um, It sucked because I didn't want to take a student loan. But at the same time, I didn't come from a well-off family that could just say, hey, you know, here's the money, do your thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was the start of in inverted commas here, entrepreneurship, it was really the start of, I really need to fix this problem, otherwise I don't get to graduate from uh, from my studies. Mm. And so I, I began to think about, okay, what could I actually do? Uh, and I thought I could teach. Uh, I, I taught kids before, I was like, this, this works, if you can teach small people things, you know, you can teach bigger people things, that's, that's yeah. the idea. Yeah. Uh, now, that was pretty good, one-to-one teaching was nice, but it didn't quite add up to what I needed for for university to work out. And so what I ended up doing was I created a class system. So my students would refer other students to join my sessions. Great for them because it was cheaper and great for me because I made a bit more. And within about two years, I managed to make enough money to cover the cost of my entire degree. And the entire cost? Yeah, it's great. You must have been teaching a lot. Um, Teaching efficiently, I think, is the way to phrase it. Because... At its peak, I think I would have had a class of maybe 15 to 20 kids. Okay. Uh, and again, it was really good for them because per hour, you're looking at three, four, five, six pounds or something. Wow. Okay. Which is, like, is brilliant. It, yeah. But when there's a minimum commitment of, you know, 10, 15 hours and there's 15 students, it, adds up, right? it starts to add up on my side as well, which okay. is like amazing. And that, wow. that was great because I remember even when it came to Google, Ironically, with this whole fuss about education, you know, your three-year degree and then two or three years with a gap year and your A-levels and then before that, the secondary school, all of that education was summarized in like one question in my interviews. And that question was, uh, you know, you're applying for a tech company. Why did you study political economy? <laughs> that, was, that was like it. There, yeah. there were no other additional questions to do with my education. Wow. Um, the reason why I said that that was a defining moment in my life was because that ended up being the standout point in my CV, starting mm. something alongside my studies. Not everybody pays for their yeah. degree uh, without the student loan. That created an entire story about, you know, how did you start a business? And when it came to any of those kind of competency questions, mine wasn't just, you know, from a project with my studies or from an internship. It was like very entrepreneurial in its, yeah. in its nature. Um, and I, I would say that, that was probably one of the key uh, defining kind of parts of my mm. interview that helped me get the job in the first place. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And so, you know, how did you kind of manage studying? And you went to King's, am I yeah. right? Same as me. So how do you, uh, it's intense, right? Any, any degree is intense. So how did you manage studying and teaching efficiently and having a life and just doing everything you needed to do mm-hmm. as like a 20-something-year-old? I think everybody has the time to do whatever it is that they want to do, but it's very easy to make excuses when you haven't started. Um, like I've never met anybody that had that said to me, you know, I'm not busy. 
mm-hmm. um, at least from let's say age 16 onwards yeah. at 16 it's a levels and you know you're probably learning to drive and your first Playing part-time Xbox, job yeah. Oh, yeah priorities in life right <laughs> and so you're busy and you tell your parents that you're busy you can't do x and y and z and then you go to university and you're busy yeah but nothing changes in your narrative and yeah. I, I don't think that's ever going to change you're never going to be free yeah. uh, and for me it's more about actually testing out what your real capacity is and I don't think you know that if you just settle with hey I'm doing this now I, I, I feel kind of busy that means I'm working to the best of my abilities or the, yeah. to my max capacity um, and I found that when you have a priority in your life and you have something that you want to do you will make time for it yeah like guaranteed uh, and so for me it's it wasn't a question of can I do it? It was more of let me just do it and then see what happens. Yeah. And so, you know, having, I guess we could call it a startup business at university, it may not have been as official as that you were kind of tutoring. When you came out of university, why did you not start Scoodle then? Why did you go into Google? I mean, as awesome as Google is, what was your kind of emotional thought process there? Uh, honestly, I think in terms of my long-term development, um, I think Google was uh, a very good decision branding-wise. Yeah. Uh, because everything, your your university, your workplace, your jobs, your experiences, they're all really proxies for, hey, you're an awesome person, I want to work with you. Yeah. That, that's really what they do. Uh, and so that's why you have university league tables. Some universities carry that brand more than others. Yeah. And the more of that that you can have the earlier in your life, my theory was the better it is for your kind of your long-term perception and imagery and, and things yeah, like that. Absolutely. So uh, the the introduction for me would have changed from, hey, you know, Ismail graduated from King's and he's speaking or and he's starting a company to ex-Google and uh, he's starting yes. a company to ex-Google funded university, all of that stuff. Yeah. It, legitimizes the entire narrative so much more because it's so much more authentic it's much better yeah. than just hey i've got an idea so i you know invest in me or something yeah 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 no 100 that's yeah that's a really good way to put it absolutely and i mean how is working for google is it are the teams quite diverse as they kind of show is it as fun are there beanbags everywhere do you get free pancakes like facebook like what, what's the kind of vibe like in there yeah, i mean i think google were probably the first or the first known company to start up that kind of quirky crazy mm. stuff so uh i was in the uh, offices in dublin okay. we had what did we have like the, the restaurants and the beanbags and the games and all that stuff mm. uh so that was really really cool and in terms of teams, I think one thing with um, all of the big tech companies, actually, uh, there are so many different things that are happening that if you're able to kind of get your step through the door, get foot through the door, sorry, and work your way there, you have access to so many different things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, though, I think one thing that you find with a lot of big companies equally is progression and learning is significantly different to what it is with the startup. Like mm-hmm. it's so much more different. With the big tech companies, there are structured processes. There are people yeah. that have done what you've done before. They can guide you through that. There's a structured learning curve. Yeah. For some, it's slightly more steep than the others. But for the most part, it goes in the same direction at the same uh, kind of degree, right? Okay. But with a startup, it's all over the place. Yeah. And 
because of that, I think I found at least the depth of the skills that you've learned and the variety of skills that you end up picking up, I don't think any kind of major corporation could match. And the way that I see it is money at this age, and when I say this age, I'm talking about post-university, pre-kids age, yeah. whatever that ends up being, 10 yeah. years, 15 years, 20 years, I don't know. Uh, but at that time in your life, money doesn't actually mean that much. Like really and truly in terms of what you need to get by, it's not that much. It's rent plus bills plus food plus your Xbox um, <laughs> and then a little bit extra on top to yeah. be comfortable, right? And you don't have long-term responsibilities or commitments. And so what the big priority should be is what is it that I've always wanted to do in my life that I can do now because there will never be a better yeah, time. Absolutely. Yeah, spot on. And, you know, after Google, so you left Google how long ago? Oh, two and a half years now, two years maybe. And so I know you had a startup that raised, was it £900,000 for charity on interest-free loans? Am I, am I yeah, um, right? Yeah, it's, so it's, it's, it's weird actually. So um, go back to university for mm. a moment. Uh, when I managed to kind of cover the cost of my degree, at that point, the question was, okay, I mean, what do I do now? <laughs> I've got what I wanted. Just actually focus on my studies finally. Um, but for me, it was, I mean, I'm still in a position where I could just carry on and do a little bit more. And so what I ended up doing was I did two things. Um, I didn't take a student loan. I wanted to facilitate other students uh, and allow them to do that if they wanted to. Yeah. And so the extra bit of money that I was making after I managed to cover my degree, uh, I would lend to other students that were in a oh, similar wow. position. Okay. Uh, and annually we would hold a charity fundraiser for a different cause as part of that. And I think by the end, so I think the last program that we had was, when was it? Last year, two years ago, I'm not sure, um, in terms of the annual event. The combination of the amount that we would raise at these events plus the extra amount that I would raise uh, in terms of interest-free loans combined, um, we got uh, close to the million pound mark in terms of uh, funds for charities and helping kind of students borrow. Uh, and then after I uh, uh, left Google, I actually joined a, a startup to lead the launch of uh, the UK's first interest-free kind of student loans platform. Mm. It was kind of like... Uh, a Kickstarter for student yeah. loans. You literally start a campaign and people lend oh, money rather yeah. than give money to you. Okay. So so we live in a world where capitalism is rife and you know, if you're going to give someone your money, you want 8% back. Why would people lend... Maybe I'm just being really capitalist here, but why would people lend other people money for no percentage return? Um, in that particular case, at least, the, the vision was that people are already doing that with ideas. Kickstarter is a working model mm. uh, and you never see your money back. You just like okay. the idea, you like the project. Yeah. Uh, so under the assumption that people are willing to give you money because they like what you do, I don't think it's too far a leap to say they'll give you money because they like what you do and they'll get their money back. Yeah. Okay, now that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so Google's a tech company. Scoodle is is a tech company of sorts. Yeah. Your main, you know, so... What was the first bit of tech you interacted with? I mean, I feel like we're a similar age, so it might be similar to me, because I know some people have said like a fax machine and like an Atari, and I'm thinking, what? So do you remember the first okay, bit let of... me see, let me see. Um, Nintendo 64, if okay, that yeah, counts. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. 
that was pretty cool. That, it wasn't mine. My uncle gave it to me. Uh, <laughs> sorry for my younger cousin because he took it away from him. But, um, that's all good. Uh, and then I think a few years later, we bought our first kind of house or home computer. Okay. I can't remember what how much memory there was in the entire device, like four gig maybe, two gig, I don't know. Um, but it was really expensive. It was like £1,500 or something. Was it like big and beige, like the old school Of ones? course. Standard. What else? And yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I remember, um, so like I'm fasting now, right? Mm. And at the end of every uh, month of fasting, there's like a, a celebration. You can call it a Muslim's Christmas. It's called Eid. <laughs> and I remember um, every single Eid, every single one of these celebrations, our family would get together. We'd visit mm-hmm. people's houses. And there was one uncle who'd always have the latest phone. Um, yeah. And so whenever we'd see him, it was like, yo, can I check it out? And we'd just we'd play about with it and uncle, take a yeah. picture with my 0.3 megapixel camera. It's, it can take pictures, which is the greatest thing ever. It's it's interesting because I remember when I was in, I think, secondary school or college, I was like, oh, I wish I was born earlier because all the good stuff has already been invented. Yeah. That, yeah. And this was pre-iPhone, pre uh, or the new Mac, pre-Snapchat, pre-Instagram. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm not that old, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's just the speed of tech development mm. is shocking. To think yeah. that 10 years ago, there was no iPhone. 10 years later, multi-billion dollar businesses don't even, just forget the iPhone, through the App Store. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, you know, what does the next 10 years hold then? Absolutely. Uh, because the, the assumption is that the speed of growth and development is going to continue to accelerate. It's not going to stay stagnant. So if the, ta- the last 10 years were crazy, the next 10 years, by definition, have to be crazier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just catching on to the areas that you're passionate about to, to join that wave and make the most of the next few years that you have. Absolutely. And you mentioned obviously being a Muslim. Now, has that you know, and I don't think you're the kind of person who has beliefs that you're limited by other things. But has that sort of limited or helped or affected your kind of businesses in, in any way, shape or form? Being in England, we're obviously, yeah. you know, minority. I mean, uh, if I wasn't Muslim, I would have taken the student loan, which meant I wouldn't have started that first business, which okay. meant I wouldn't have gone to Google, which meant I wouldn't <laughs> have started Scudo and got the funding that we did for it. it my religion... Uh, defined a core part of my life mm. but not as a means of constraint but more yeah. as a means of developing creative ways to uh, to find the solutions that you're after yeah okay and I, I like to talk about your parents sure so you know parents i think play a big influence and a big kind of motivator in how we are as people right and i think especially in kind of you know non-western societies we're generally quite close to our parents yeah um you know, I don't pay rent, for example. I'm 24, I live at home. I don't pay rent. That's just how, like, Punjabis roll. And that's just that's kind of standard, right? And so, like, how do you think your parents have kind of influenced you? Like, maybe what are the kind of top three things that they've instilled in you that you now use to this day and have made you the success you are? Hmm. I think one thing uh, predominantly from my dad, I would say, is honesty with finances and money and transparency mm-hmm. in that sense uh, and especially when it comes to things like investment because at the end of the day I know they invested in your company and whatever but it wasn't your money to begin with yeah and to just suddenly see 
a decent number of zeros in uh, in a business bank account. It's it's a good feeling. And you say you you use the minority card. At least in in my case, um, working class background, council housing, Afro. Like tick all of those minority <laughs> boxes, right? And for that community of people, mm. there are certain ceilings in their lives that exist. Yeah. And one of those ceilings happens to be within the startup and entrepreneurial space. And so what happens is when when this becomes a possibility where, you know, people are willing to actually invest, uh, you know, relatively large sums of money yeah, in absolutely. you and in your project, it's really important to maintain the values that you hold to yourself with other aspects of your life, like other people's money. Yeah. Um, and in, in that particular case, it's really important for me to, um, to make sure that I do that. I think um, one of the reasons why perhaps a lot of minorities and a lot of low income individuals end up not taking the entrepreneurial route, at least I found anyway, and I've had this conversation with quite a few people, mm. it actually goes back to why they... Uh, what is and why your parents migrated to the UK in the first place? Okay. Um, and what I found, and it, it seems to be consistently true-ish, mm-hmm. uh, at least from 30, 40 years ago, yeah. it was either a combination of war or poverty or both, right? Uh, something wasn't right, you know, in inverted commas again, back home. And so we want to try and find a safe space uh, to raise our family. And... What you find with you know parents that come from a background like that is the one thing that was missing in their life was stability. There were so many potential problems. And so it's no surprise that when those parents come to the UK and they raise their kids, what are the, you know, the, the top jobs that come up? Um, I know you, there are all these jokes about lawyers and doctors and stuff, yeah. but um, take that out for a moment. What do they offer globally? You know, they offer stability. It's like it's doctors get jobs like it's mm-hmm. for the most part almost guaranteed uh and so that makes sense and i understand where that comes from because it comes from a good place the way that i see it now is just that we are relatively stable i mean being able to to graduate from a british institution having the upbringing that we've had despite you know the the uh, relative struggles that we've had we are very very privileged uh, as a community and so given that your parents and my parents have solved or almost solved this stability thing mm. it's now for us to take things to the next level so now that we're stable ish what can we do to go to that next level and for me it is in the space of entrepreneurship building companies and uh, you know creating jobs uh, for the world because your parents have gone as far as they possibly could. Now, you know, there was a time where you never saw 24 and I never saw 25, but we're here now. And, you know, we're no longer kids. It's not about dreaming for the future only. It's actually bringing that to the present and making it a reality. Yeah. And that's that's really insightful, actually, because I, when I kind of think about what you said, I normally put it kind of looking forward in terms of, there's no role models in FTSE 100 companies or, you know, heads of this who are like us, you know, that kind of typical thing of I need to see someone like me. But actually what you said is an incredibly valid and, yeah, true-ish kind of point, like you said, 
because I see it with myself. My mum's very safe. She's very much like this, that, and the other. I said, oh, um, can, can I remortgage your house to get into property investment? <laughs> Slapped me around the head. You must be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, you don't understand good debt and bad debt. And I was just like thinking, hold on. All debt is bad yeah, debt, yeah. all right? <laughs> I, worked down, I worked 40 years to pay this off. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, just, it's equity doing nothing. And so for me, actually, that's really, really, really insightful. You said that because I'm thinking, yes. I am this kind of disruptive <laughs> young person who's like, listen, don't worry about it. We're, we're going to change the scene. Are you crazy, man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and now you kind of said that. I'm like, oh, yeah. Now I kind of understand her point of view, being that stability, that kind yeah. of old school mentality. So what, what do your parents do for work? Are they in tech? Have they been in tech? Are they... Not at all. Um, my uh, dad works as a translator. He speaks a ton of different languages. I think... Wow. Um, Arabic, Swahili, Brabanese, Italian, um, and English. I think those are four or five. Um, wow. But it's close enough. So he, he works as a translator right now. Um, and my mum's at home. So it's a, a traditional setting in that sense. Yeah. Mm. Tech just, yeah. It was, to be honest, I wanted to be a banker, actually. <laughs> uh, One of the good listed jobs, yeah. Uh, I mean, priorities in life, it's money, right? That's, that's what it was. <laughs> so, that is what it is. I remember... Pursuit um, in the morning. When I went to college... Uh, there was this kind of dream of like, hey, we're, we're going to just roll up to Canary Wharf with our CVs. And we did. Um, we went to Canary Wharf with our CVs. I, I mean, I didn't realize the level of uh, <laughs> access barriers that I would have faced. <laughs> yeah. But I, I thought like, hey, I'll just find some dude with a suit, hand it over. And like, wow, you are a brave young kid. Come along and let me pay you thousands of pounds. It didn't happen, but I thought, hey, it's, it was worth the shot. Uh, but yeah. No, it definitely was worth the shot. And, and you know, like going you know, back to your parents, what is the tech gap like between your parents? Do they understand like what an app is and how to, like my mom yeah. types like this. So I'm kind of like, you know. Yeah. Uh, so with my parents, when it comes to tech, they have adopted uh, a lot as a product of, uh, their kids mm-hmm. um, and I, it depends on so with me I've still got younger sisters that are at school okay and so they have I guess I say access to my parents they're engaged with my parents yeah. a lot more and so my mum would for example it's, she snapchats her food it is the weirdest <laughs> thing ever <laughs> Wow. But uh, like she she gets involved in that because my sisters Yay. were there and she'd use WhatsApp as a form of communication. Um, I remember when we went to uh, kind of Dubai and Saudi Arabia and they've got the whole, uh, they block everything but the local network in oh, terms of calling. Okay. I'm not sure if you knew that. Um, it, it's a thing. So I know with Dubai, for example, uh, you can't make calls anymore with Skype or with WhatsApp and things like that. Um, it's a form of, I, I think, protecting the... Uh, telecommunication networks and companies within there Um, interesting but anyway I remember my mum found alternative apps (laughs) to to make those calls possible it's not because she was particularly tech savvy per se it was just uh, hey this does this let's just play about with it and use it and whatnot and see where it takes me Um, but it's it's a very it's a consumerist engagement to technology meaning this is pretty useful I want to use it now um, and most of it is centered around the mobile phone. So she's not comfortable using a laptop okay. or a computer. Um, That's but, very modern, if anything, because everything's going to the kind of app in the mobile. So she's like yeah. one step ahead of the game. So the way that I see it is that she actually skipped the computer generation yeah. because the computer generation was us on our computers by ourselves. She yeah. didn't have her computer. We did. Mm. But now everybody has their own phone. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so it's like 
I mean, I've got this, so I may as well. And then, you know, oh, YouTube, I can watch videos and stuff. Yeah, I can record yeah, yeah. my voice and everything else. And so you have that sense of self-discovery because you have your own computer yeah. in your pocket. Um, and then with my dad, yeah. it's... Uh, so obviously with him, he was on the computer uh, more so for work. And every now and again, things like, you know, printer issues or converting things to PDF and converting them back and... Uh, things that just don't work um, I'd kind of be there to give a hand so okay. neither come from a tech background out of choice they are both uh, tech consumerists out of necessity because of the yeah. life that they live as I think most people tend to be mm. and do they kind of understand what you're doing and support it because I know for example a lot of my friends who are Indian who are Punjabi a lot of their parents would be like you're going to quit your job and have no income and maybe get funding and maybe work from home for the next year. That's not, no. So how did it kind of work for you in that sense? Yeah. I think my parents began to develop a sense of trust over my decision-making with time. Okay. When I chose not to take a student loan, they were against it. They didn't prevent me from doing it, mm-hmm. but bringing stability back into it, for them it was what is the point of risking your entire degree to pay for it if that makes sense i mean yeah yeah if you're going to fake like it doesn't make any sense it's okay and i didn't want to go ahead and take that position and take that decision for myself even though i at least now I, i get why they said what they said it's again around stability around uh, making sure that you actually do get a degree in the first place mm. um, and when that worked out and I think like when it came to things like you know, YouTube videos and articles and things like that um, within the minority community I feel like external validation is the biggest stamp of approval you can get um, by external I mean aunties, cousins, uncles <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, because obviously you know your son is always terrible until someone else says they're not <laughs> <laughs> standard yeah that's the way that it is and they uh th- there was a bit of this you know it, it was kind of a nice sense of external validation you know, she would scroll through my facebook timeline for example to see the stuff that i got and they're like oh you know i'm making something today put it on facebook <laughs> uh, and things like that and so that started to legitimize uh mm. what i what i did and i and i find that um the the best way to tackle um, the the stability issue is to do something or to find something that your parents end up really liking or trusting. Um, and for me, the big thing, um, so that uni stuff was nice and, you know, it worked out well and it came with its own events and stuff. Um, but talking about Google being a great branding card, mm. um, it's an, an incredible institution to work for. And obviously my parents didn't know that <laughs> until I just told them. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, wow, that's that's amazing. Um, and so that's what created okay, fine, He seems to know what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, and so when it came to um, starting my own startup, I was like, you know, we're going to be raising funds. And we ended up, you know, raising an angel round successfully. They were happy to support whatever it was. Yeah. Um, not to say that they know the ins and outs of, you know, what an app is like, or what it takes to build an app or anything like that. But it's more of a support of the person, not a support of the idea. And that takes a while to build. Yeah. So I think, I guess, tips for anyone who is kind of having trouble 
maybe with their parents, which is, I guess, quite a common thing, especially in our kind of communities, is communicate with them. Tell them exactly what you're doing, what's good about it, what's bad about it. Be honest. Show them kind of things like you were with Facebook. Um, and just maybe involve them if in any way you can to kind of show them that it is something real, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd also say just start as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as you can and I think the barriers towards starting your own thing whether it's a project or a company are a lot less or a lot smaller than most people tend to think yes you don't need expensive tech and a huge massive team and two or three years of time to have version one usually version one I mean the the, the really cool narrative remember there's a program that I did at Harvard Um, Tom Chi who was one of the guys from Google X was there to speak and He said, you know, guess how long it took us to make the first working prototype of uh, the Google Glasses. Um, What do you think it is? Knowing Google, it's probably like three weeks. Close. It was a day. (laughs) That's what I mean. I mean, they they literally got like some kitchen wires and just put stuff together. Just Just started. Exist. And then... Because, you know, there are all of these ideas about, you know, what shape should it be? And mm. what about this color or that color? It's like, okay, just do it. And yeah. you, you put it on the that That's actually quite uncomfortable. Or that this is really neat, mm. right? Um, and th- there's a huge lesson in that. Uh, everybody has amazing ideas, but you can break it down to something really, really, really basic. I mean, uh, the, the most basic version for Scoodle you know, there are students, there are tutors, um, and we want to put them together. Yeah. The way that we do it now is, you know, students ask questions, the tutors answer these questions. It's a great way to engage. And mm-hmm. if the students are happy with the answers that they get, they can book sessions directly with the tutors. Like, it's great. It's um, the first platform that doesn't actually charge booking fees as well. But um, rewind time to two or three years ago. What is the first version of this app? What can you teach? Are you, are you happy to teach? Say you want to teach maths. Great. I've got a maths teacher. Where can I find a maths student? Um, my sister goes to school. Maybe she doesn't want it now. Do her friends want a math tutor? Yes. Great. I've got a math tutor. Let's see if this works. No, it doesn't work. You don't trust him. Great. Problem number one. How do you build trust between students and tutors? Now, if I just spent ages planning and writing things down about how things are going to work, we're going to make the mistake of prioritizing things incorrectly yeah Um, in that particular case trust was huge and that came up straight away so we solve for that Um, so the big lesson is honestly just start like just think about the most basic form of existence Mm. for your idea such that you can put it into somebody's hands in seven days yeah I think that's fantastic advice. I think me and a couple of friends who are also recruiters have been planning startups and talking about them and speaking to people like you, everyone says you need a proof of concept, right? Which is what you kind of said. You need an example that one, it works for investors and two, for yourself to know that it works and three, just get started. And I think that kind of, um, I can't remember the term, but it's like when you get paralyzed by information and planning and data and you just sort of don't act on it. So I think that's fantastic advice for for anyone in any part of life, like just do it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I know kind of off mic, you mentioned you're from a kind of borderless culture. <laughs> now, is there anything that, you know, your culture, again, has kind of instilled in you that you then happen to bring to Scoodle naturally through your personality and your values? 
The, anybody who says no to that is lying. I think <laughs> the answer has to be yes because you are a product of your culture and your society and the people around you always. Yeah. Whether you the, the, the issue is normally that people aren't aware of these factors of influence. Um, and uh, I'm married, by the way. Okay. Uh, and that thinks a lot. Of, <laughs> and that's what made me realize these cultural differences. Because my wife isn't from wherever it is that I'm from. She's actually Tunisian. It's a lot more straightforward. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, born in, uh, well, raised in, uh, the, uh, in Canada and the Emirates and things like okay. that. So two very different cultures. Yeah. And when you put two very different cultures together, you start to really understand um, where the differences are. You're only as different as what you can compare yourself to, right? Yeah. Um, and it's not the same when you have friends of different cultures or whatever. It's... A different experience mm. um, and so that made me understand some of these kind of big things so what one thing is uh, I'm very very laid back in my approach to life um, like if you could associate a phrase with me it's it's not that deep <laughs> and <laughs> most things in life are not that deep uh, and so it's like my approach to a lot of things within the company, you know, just, I mean, it's cool. Like, let's just get going and move yeah. around with things. And I, that is a product of uh, the culture that I'm from. Another thing that I've noticed is that uh, the barriers that we have as a kind of family unit are virtually non-existent. So I remember when we first came to this office space, like to my cousin, yeah, come over, like, it's cool, hang out and stuff, you know, play some PlayStation and all that stuff. Um, it's also a working environment um, and figuring out that sense of balance, mm. especially when there are these cultural differences that exist. Yeah. So A, it's knowing that they exist and B, it's knowing that not everybody has them. And when you can put the two together, you can start to figure out a sense of, okay, this will work really well. So, you know, if people are going to be coming over to the workspace, uh, unless they're actually working it should be in the social area of the floor rather mm. than where the desks are, for example. Um, sometimes, and a part of it is also the hype that you get with the company at the very start, you know, like, hey, office space, it's great. <laughs> just come and hang out. And that naturally dies out itself. Um, but it's just figuring out where these differences are so you can work together on kind of aligning them with uh, the preferences of others as well. Mm. That's very, very interesting. And I think... I've been working at home for two years myself and kind of going to a company where I'm one of two or three Indians, there is definitely like a cultural and behavioral shift that I've noticed. And it's similar to kind of yourself about having these kind of barriers and boundaries. And it's like, this is not my home. So I can't, <laughs> I can't just wear slippers and just take off your socks <laughs> yeah. on the table. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. I kind of, I see my own kind of history in, in what you're saying. So um, Ismail, tell me about your closest group of friends right now and the reason i ask it's not because i'm stalking you um, is because having a group of friends that kind of support you take the mick out of you a little bit kind of keep you on on the kind of straight and narrow as such are, are kind of important in some aspects especially in a startup so okay so it depends how you measure the closeness of your relationship with your friends um, and how that changes. I find that um, the people that I spend the most time around are those that I'm working with, mm -hmm. uh, obviously within uh, within Scoodle. Um, we also have a kind of a group on Telegram. Uh, we don't actually use WhatsApp, um, not just as a company, but um, with my uni friends. 
Uh, and I think one of the, the really cool developments of tech uh, and one of the reasons why I think I'm closer with my uni friends than I am with college and secondary school is because technology made it so. You know, we're bound by uh, a place where we can actually share ideas and communicate and things like that. Um, so I think it's a combination of uh, the two of those. I, I see Team Scoodle all the time uh, and I'm regularly in touch with um, the people that I'd spoken to from uh, university. But one thing that I would like to add is <clears throat> it's not just about your closest friends or your close friends that help shape you and kind of keep you on kind of a, a good path or whatever. Uh, I remember in, in my studies at King's, there was the notion of political economy. And, and one thing that they looked at was the differences between strong networks and weak networks. Um, a strong network is you and people like you, probably your brothers and sisters and parents and your close friends who you travel with. And those networks are strong because you share a lot of similar things, whether mm -hmm. it's values or interests or skill sets. Mm -hmm. And that's great for building kind of tight-knit communities. But to really expand and access different things, you the, the real value is in your weak networks, not your strong networks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not to say that you have to convert weak into strong. It just kind of needs to exist well enough for you to be able to have conversations and share ideas. I mean, when you think about asking people for an introduction, right? Uh, you probably do this all the time, right? Like finding people to speak on the podcast. Yeah. You may be really close to the person that uh, made it possible. Maybe not. I don't know. But for the most part, it's just a, a string of weak networks. Yeah. As in... When they spoke, it was pretty cool. We used to hang out a bit, maybe a coffee here or something like that, but nothing beyond that. And because of that, that relationship was strong enough to say, hey, I can make a referral from you to this person over here. Um, and so, yeah, uh, strong networks are a big deal for your sanity, uh, but building a wider extended network, uh, extended network, sorry, is really key to your development and the development of anything you're going to do. Um, for the future too that's very interesting i've never i've never heard it put like that is that your own sort of original thinking or is it from a book or um i can't remember the guy's name um we, we covered it in uh in university uh, as a okay thing. and it's political economics you said yeah oh that's very interesting and then so speaking of kind of you know the, the sort of people in in your company tell me about your first employee um and would you call them an employee <laughs> I don't think so. Mm. Um, it's just like we're a team of people. Mm. The only kind of, I'd say, division that exists is uh, the division between full-time and part-time. Okay. Um, and there's kind of three of us that are full-time, three of us that are part-time. Um, but that's about it. We have the same kind of type of meetings and things like that. Uh, usually I find that kind of because each person has somewhat of a different focus area, um, I'd end up speaking to each individual more so than the others would do. Um, okay. I, I, I guess that if there's anything CEO-ish about my role, it would probably be that, mm -hmm. um, which is somewhat acting as a, a bridge between the different things that need to be done. Um, but yeah, the the notion of these barriers aren't really there, especially not at this stage. Yeah. No, oh, excellent. And then so your first in your first team member. Yeah. Who were they and what did so they do? There were three of us when we first started oh, so, the company. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. 
Um, so um, initially there were three of us. Um, the other two went to primary school together. We all went to the same kind of uh, weekend school from wow. well, age 10 or 11 or something. Uh, two of us went to university together. Um, and myself and the other guy actually worked on that first project at university. There's just so wow, much okay, yeah. overlap uh, over like 15 years wow. that led to Scoodle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a huge collect connection of all these networks you just mentioned yeah. and, and life just happening, right? Yeah, pretty much. And so when you plan to start hiring, you know, do you, you know, being a recruiter, I have to ask, do you think it's going to be a challenge? Do you yeah. think you've got a great brand? Do you, what are your thoughts on it? Are you dreading it? Or? You should be teaching me. I, you're, you're the recruiter. <laughs> well, you got right? my number. So, uh. <laughs> so I think at the most early stage, your hires are your network uh, at this stage at least because you're not just hiring and you probably know this better than I do but you're not just hiring for talent and specific skill sets because startups change you will end up doing different things and so you hire for mindset and values and you hire I think for uh, for the most part uh, general competencies that you know yeah. If this needs to be put elsewhere, it will be done to an excellent standard. Yeah. Um, and that's a really big deal. Uh, I think, you, you again, share your experiences too, but from what I've been told, tech hires are usually the most difficult um, because those guys and girls charge way too much money and um, <laughs> it's just hard to find them. Um, where we are now, uh, I think our next one to two tech hires uh, when we get to that stage, we've already got in mind um, because Great. we've known them for a while, for a good few years. Um, and it's now just kind of planting a few seeds here and there, just dropping a, hey, you're going to join Scooter soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and like, yeah, yeah, very, very funny. <laughs> but over time, mm-hmm. uh, building it such that uh, it actually becomes a possibility. Um, if anything, I would probably say that uh, the right uh, business hires is more of a challenge because it's, Tech is somewhat of a tangible skill set, whereas business level hires aren't so much tangible. It's actually a Mm. different type of hire. So there's um, a friend of mine uh, that we're keeping in mind now um, on the marketing front uh, to make that possible. Beyond that, it's yeah, I'd be giving you a phone call and asking you for advice. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, you're spot on. They they do charge a lot. Whether it's too much, not my place to say. Um, But yeah. Finding developers are very, very tricky. They earn 1.5 to 2.5 times as much contracting as they do perm. And who's got money for that in a startup? Yeah. Nobody got money for that, right? Um, so in in terms of Scoodle, and this might be tricky because of the, the kind of scale at which it, it, it works and it's going to work. Who was your first paying customer? Is there a kind of romanticized story about them? Or was it just a student somewhere in London? Um, who was the first paying customer? So you're, you're talking about Scoodle as in the current platform yeah. in, its, in its very form. Um, I actually talked through the app myself very early on okay. uh, because mm. there's no better way to learn your product than to use it for <laughs> yeah. yourself. Um, I can't remember if that was the first customer or not, mm-hmm. but it was definitely early enough to define the direction and the priorities of the product Uh not sure yeah. if that's quite the answer, but it's no, no, an I mean, answer. I think it's a tricky question to ask given what Scoodle does. You know, yeah. it's not as easy as a, a SaaS company selling something. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, no, completely makes sense. And, you know, 
uh, this whole podcast and then our, some of our questions are about kind of diversity and culture. You know, what do you think the London startup scene, the London tech startup scene is doing diversity well? Do you think there's room to improve? And if so, where could they improve? And what could maybe people like you and me do about it? Kind of um, a big question. We, we can do things like this. And mm-hmm. I think once it's done, it's making sure that it goes in front of the right people. Yeah. I, I would say going back to kind of the point you mentioned earlier around looking for diversity in the leadership of, you know, FTSE 100 or FTSE 500 or something. Um, I think that that is true. Uh, and I think that finding somebody like you doing something makes it possible. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be true time and time and time again. And I've tried my best to make that a part of what I'm doing, uh, not just now, but from university. So it's uh, actually speaking at institutions to students about getting into university. Mm-hmm. When I was at Google, I'd actually had kind of school trips of kids coming over. Uh, and they would come over to the offices in Wichita. Yeah. And it's literally just, I look like them. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's it's weird to say that, but time and time again, you see somebody else, like, but they've got this and that, they've got money helping them and privilege and all of this. And Excuses. It doesn't connect. But when it's somebody like you, it's like, whoa, that, that is possible. And I found yeah. that even with, you know, the university decision not to take a student loan, we had kind of a flagship event called How I Beat the 9K. And like students who attended the event wouldn't take a student loan the next year. Wow. Because That's up big. until that point, it was like £9,000 is a lot of money. <laughs> you know, it, like, the thought of doing that doesn't cross one's mind. Not at all. And when you see that, whoa, like somebody like me from a working class council house background and uh, raised in London and all of that stuff, they did it. So maybe I can. Um, And so for me, it's in terms of uh, tackling the diversity thing. It's part of the narrative now, at least on the outside, people seem to care. And that's good because we can now contribute to that narrative. But the next stage is actually uh, a problem, in my opinion, of access, not just of information. Mm -hmm. Because the information is kind of there now. There are programs that help people from low-income backgrounds. And um, there are so many kind of different opportunities that exist. But existing isn't enough when it's not in front of the right people. Yeah. And so it's figuring out how to take what exists, which is meant to help these people, and how to bring the two together. Absolutely. and figuring out ways to do that, whether it's through social media or podcasts or events or uh, work experience programs, like all of these different things. Um, access, in my opinion, is probably the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with you. And I think, you know, if there's anything you're doing to kind of provide this access, I'd love to be a part of it and help you out. So you know where I am, mate. let me know. Because, you know, okay. I, hope, I hope this podcast will reach... The right kind of people and i'm hoping to get it you know to the right kind of people so that's that's very interesting and have you heard the story of obama and the little kid who touched his hair no so this is really interesting i'll, I'll tell it quickly so i have to thank andy am for this um, who's probably gonna be listening at one, at some point so there's a, a little black kid he goes into he's meeting obama because his dad is obama's something in the white house and you give family tours but it's all very strict so before you see Obama, if you want to ask him any questions, they're pre-vetted, pre-approved, everything. Everything you wear is strip-searched. Pre, you know, it's very strict. None of this messing around. He's a president, right? 
So the kid walks in with his dad and his mom, and, and then the kid kind of looks at Obama and says, can you bend down? And everyone's like, oh my God, what's going on? Like, is the security breach? Like, everyone's freaking out. And Obama bends down. Obviously, Obama's a cool dude, right? And the kid touches his hair, and he says, that's like mine. And at that moment, this, this lovely little kid realised, I can become the president. You know, yeah, and it's such a powerful story that, like, I, I keep telling people because it's like, yes, you need to see, you know, someone like you in that kind of position. I mean, it's wonderful to see, you know, and there's a picture of it online if you Google sort of what I kind of said, and the kid's face is just, and it's just a great picture, and it shows what a. That's of, really cool. I want to use that story someday yeah, no, as well. Definitely do. There's a really cool picture of him touching his hair as he's bending down. And yeah, you, know, you wouldn't see Trump bending down. You wouldn't want to touch Trump's hair, though. But that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a different kind of um, story. So my last question, and this is probably a question that most people ask right at the beginning, and I think it's important for people to know: what is Scoodle? Ah, good question. <laughs> We're a platform that connects students with tutors, kind of like an Airbnb for tutoring. The way that it works: uh, students ask questions, tutors give answers. And then students can book lessons directly uh, with the tutors. We're the only platform worldwide that doesn't charge booking fees. So the parents don't pay any extra fee, nor do the students. Um, and we have kind of incredible long-term relationships uh, because of that. So that's the platform. It's on iPhone. It's on Android. Um, like, feel free to check it out and uh, um, ask a few questions and find, find tutors for <laughs> Uh, friends and family so how do you make money off it then as so a business make money off we it? initially did charge fees mm-hmm. uh, and so the idea was that you charge 20 pounds an hour the company takes like 10 percent, and it's all good yeah. problem with that and we've seen this with other kind of tutoring marketplaces is that tutoring isn't airbnb and it's not uber and one of the big differences between the two is uber and airbnb for the most part are uh, one-off interactions you only really see that taxi driver once. Mm. You only really stare at that person's place once, maybe twice, if you really like it. Whereas with tutoring, you see them every week, probably for a year or two. And if you're anything like me, you then recommend them to siblings and cousins and somebody else. Like It's a 10-year commitment or something Mm. worth of teaching in the space of two or three years. So why that difference really matters is that trust is built, um, statistically speaking, from looking at kind of the different competitors, by about eight hours. So at the eighth hour of teaching, either the student or the tutor wants to leave the platform because why would I continue to give you my money? Yeah. Right? And why that really matters is that your ability to scale is limited. And I mean, you can become pretty big in London. You can probably become uh, big in the UK you would really struggle to scale uh, beyond that. And not because I think this, but because I've been told this by investors of tutoring companies, by founders of tutoring Mm. companies, and by looking at uh, the tutoring companies that exist. So for us, the decision to scrap fees was a decision uh, to say that we aren't building something for this country alone. Um, We're building something for the world. And so then the question comes, that's great. But okay, how do you make money? Um, <laughs> Who's paying the bills, yeah. We are sustaining ourselves right now through the angel round of funding that we have and we're going to probably raise a new round um, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but as far as monetization is concerned, um, there's kind of a three-step strategy that we're building. Uh, the first is driven by the question-and-answer platform uh, because right now students can ask a question and they can get an answer pretty quickly. 
we haven't placed any limits on that yet. Okay. Uh, but the idea would be to actually start a subscription model once a student wants to engage to a certain level. We're still kind of fine-tuning the numbers, whether mm-hmm. that cap is going to be a daily, weekly, or monthly cap uh, before you pay for a subscription fee. Um, but that's kind of the first stage of generating revenue. The okay. second stage, um, which kind of relates to that trust problem and relates to what I actually did as a, as a student at university, is group classes. One-to-one teaching, trust is built very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. One-to-five or one-to-ten has so many more variables at place that the notion of charging fees there makes more sense because you're constantly getting value. You're managing the communication system. You're managing the payment system of a large group of people and so on. Um, So that would only come into place when we reach a sufficient critical mass of engaged users. We need to get it to the stage where when a tutor creates a class, there are students that are looking for that. Um, And to do that, we need to build something people love first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's stage two. Stage three is uh, further ahead in kind of in the long term, where we have access to a lot more answers and data from uh, the different questions that students have asked and the tutors have answered. The idea being that within a certain age range, there's a finite number of questions that a student can ask um, in history between, you know, grade 7 to 11, 3,000 questions, 5,000, I don't know. Once we have enough of those questions, when a student asks if the data is set up and the structure of kind of our tech is set up in the right way, which um, I'm going to say with confidence that it will be, uh, the barrier to getting an answer from, you know, five minutes to a minute actually to zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the answer exists. Uh, And that's, for me, that's kind of um, almost an Amazon prime model where mm. we've already got the product there and we can give it to you instantly but we can give it to you in a day as well or in an hour yeah and we dictate and control that um yeah. and that's the direction that we're going in but all of that fundamentally depends on can we build something that enough people love and that's the focus right now more than anything oh, that makes sense and how many users on Scoodle in total? Um, we have our first few thousand users now, about 3,000 installs on the app. Um, is that 3,000 students or teachers or, or is it mixed? It's a mixture of both. It's about, I think, 60-40 split leading to the student side. Oh, wow. Um, which is good. Which is really uh, good. Because yeah. tutors, in theory, are the easier ones to get to. Um, yes. But this is great because students have questions and yeah. stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's leaning to uh, the student side, but we're trying our best to keep the balance in place on both sides so where we are right now with the company it'll be interesting to hear this in a year's time but now it's optimizing the flows beyond the first level engagement because we're confident that when a student comes they will ask a question and check out some tutors like 80 to 90 percent of the time that happens which is amazing yeah now it's okay designing for re re re-engagement again and again to make sure that they're embedded into the platform for the long haul and that's kind of what we're Um, honing in with and kind of really tweaking uh, to make sure that that works before we raise the next round of funding. Excellent. Well, you can count it as 3001 when I leave the office (laughs) because um, I used to tutor and this this sounds incredible. Yeah, check it out. Definitely will do. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, I know you said on your LinkedIn you you love telling stories and I think there's plenty of great stories on there (laughs) that, you know, honestly, I've learned a lot from and it's it's brought me a lot of insight into things that I perhaps wasn't looking at or wasn't looking at the bigger picture. So, on a personal note, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure everyone listening is going to love it as well. And 
yeah, hopefully we can do this again in a year and, and see what see where you're at. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to do it. Like, it's great founder therapy as well, you know, just <laughs> speak everything out. Yeah, I'm your, I'm your Agni uncle, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Smell. Thanks a lot.